turn to Hebrews chapter 11. This morning, you're going to need to have a hand in Hebrews 11 and a hand in Genesis. The Hebrews preacher in chapter 11, he goes back and grabs some things that are going on in Genesis. So Genesis 1 and Hebrews 11 will be um, where we're based today. I, I may have you turn somewhere else, but probably not. That's probably all we're going to be in is this morning is Hebrews 11 and uh, the book of Genesis, the first five chapters or so, a few little spots here. Let me give you a kind of a context for Hebrews 11. Something that's really cool about what the Hebrews preacher has done for us, what God has done for us in this, is something that you can appreciate and enjoy. And enjoy. Listen to this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. It's where we were last week. Aren't those lights normally turned down a little bit? Do that for me. It's habit for me, and I, I think better when I can't see your faces so well. If you're snoozing, it can throw, you, throw a guy off, you know what I'm saying? Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 36. He's writing to the Hebrews church and says, You guys, you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. If you skipped the whole book or the whole chapter 11 and skipped over, over to chapter 12, listen to how this reads, beginning in about halfway through the first verse. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He just ended chapter 10 with an encouragement that you have need of endurance. He starts chapter 12 with an encouragement, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. He could have left out the entire chapter 11, but he didn't because he gave us a treat in chapter 11. He gave us a whole chapter full of people that we can sit and study and enjoy who lived by faith. Beautiful examples, heroes of faith that we can sit and learn from if we'll take the time to consider. And we're going to spend the summer considering these folks. This morning, we're just going to look at the first two, Abel and Enoch. Abel and Enoch. One of the cool things about this chapter is the Hebrews preacher gives us a chapter full of people to imitate. Paul, throughout his letters, encourages people to imitate the faithful. He encourages the saints, imitate those who are moving well, who are faithful, who are living in a way that glorifies the Lord. So we have a chapter full of people here to model after, a chapter full of people to imitate, and a chapter full of people to learn from. The Hebrews preacher wants the Hebrews church that while they're in a context where they may not be seeing things that are real encouraging, he wants them to rest on something other than what they see with their eyes. Like the Old Testament heroes rested on promises even when there was no visible evidence that God was going to come through. That's what you're going to see throughout this chapter. All evidence, all visual feedback is telling you God has failed you, but God proves over and over through the lives of these heroes that God's the ultimate hero. 
He's the ultimate faithful being behind these heroes. These guys, these heroes in chapter 11, took God at His word and they acted accordingly. Now, my plan for breaking down our passage this morning is we're just going to look a couple of verses at a time for the, at the first six verses of chapter 11. That's all we're going to do this morning, the first six verses of chapter 11. We're going to look at the first two together where we see that faith is assured and convicted. If you kind of like to have an outline and a plan for the morning, I'll give you kind of a map for where we're going. We're going to look at the first two verses to see where faith is assured and convicted. We'll look at verse 3 where we see that faith starts with the basics. We'll look at at verse 4 where we'll see that faith gives God first and best and may pay for it. And then we'll look at verse 5 where we see that faith walks with God. And then verse 6 will lead us right into our supper this morning. Without faith, there's no pleasing God. Okay, So that's our plan for the morning. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read, just for the sake of kind of integrity, I'm going to read all six verses together. I want us to kind of immerse ourselves in this passage. So I'm going to read all six verses together, and then we'll come back and break it down like I just shared with you. Okay, let's climb in to this passage. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he should not see death, taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's look at the first couple of verses of this passage. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. I want to look at these two phrases. These are treasures and have been treasures for the saints for 2,000 years. This passage is not an exhaustive definition of faith, but it's a beautiful definition. It doesn't cover every element of faith, but it captures two really wonderful things about faith. First, the assurance of things hoped for. This word assurance, if you're familiar with the King James Version, if you, like me, learned this at an early age before the NIV was ever ever distributed, you may have been a King James type of person for years and years ago, you know that this passage says in the King James, it's the substance of things hoped for. That word in the Greek for assurance is the word hypostasis, and it means substance. I think assurance is a good word here, but it's one that I, I enjoy the substance leaning a little more because it helps you make sense of the assurance, what's being said there. What's being said essentially is things which in themselves have no existence as of yet become real and substantial by faith. Things that in and of themselves have no existence as of yet 
become real and substantial by faith. This first phrase that's helping you understand what faith is, is pointing forward. It's the basis of faith here is on what you don't have as of yet, but what you are hoping for. Real faith looks forward dealing with the future, resting on future promises as if they've already been realized. Paul connected to this concept in in Romans chapter 8. Listen to this passage. If you want to jot down where it is, you can jot this down, Romans 8, 24. Paul makes the same point with hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. Both hope and faith are oriented forward. They're pointing forward, looking to something that hasn't happened yet, but has been promised. And you believe something so much, though it hasn't happened, it's as if it already has. That's the way these faithful heroes in chapter 11 lived, living forward. The promises that were coming, or they were promises that were made that were yet to be fulfilled, living as if they've already been fulfilled. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember something that I shared with you, that faith um, is something that endures. It's, it's the uniting characteristic of all Christians, that Christ, true Christians will endure to the finish. If somebody bails on the faith at some point, then they prove that they were never really of us. They went out from us, as First John says, they were never truly of us. So the uniting characteristic or the uniting trait of all Christians is the character of endurance in your faith. You may remember last week if you were here that I can't make you a promise that you're a Christian, just like I can't make myself. I can't right here say I'm absolutely sure that I'm saved. In 11 years of ministry, that has been quite troubling for folks because, man, if you're not, then how can I be? But here's the thing I want you to realize. Assurance here, faithful assurance, is not in resting in some event. It's not resting in some experience that's taken place in your life, albeit however emotional it may have been, albeit special. You may have an inscription in front of your Bible. Your pastor may have signed it. A date may have, you know, may be associated with some event that took place. I don't want to discount that that wasn't a special event, but assurance doesn't grip that. Because most of Greenville is assured that they're saved because they're gripping that. Assurance grips something that hasn't happened yet. Assurance grips something that is yet to come. Assurance grips something that is sure, and it's so sure to you, and you believe it so much, it's as if it's already happened. The definition of faith here in this first part of the definition is not faith is the assurance of things experienced. Faith is the the assurance of things that you're hoping for, things that haven't come yet. In the 11 years that I've mentioned those sort of thoughts about, I can't make you a promise that you're a true Christian because I can't see the future to see if you're going to endure to the finish line. That's been troubling for folks because maybe your definition of assurance needed to be disassembled. Greenville was great at holding fast to an experience. And that's why most people have no use for together with the church, drawing near, holding fast, or considering how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And they just, just soon stay home hanging out with Jesus, me and Jesus, their own figment of who Jesus must be. Man, this is, this is an important thing for us to consider. 
that definition of assurance needs to be disassembled. disassembled. But I will promise you this, paradigms don't come down painlessly. They hurt, and it's difficult to knock them down. But when they go down, man, something strong can be built in its place. And something strong is an assurance that's looking forward to something and holding fast to a promise. Assurance comes in the hope that he'll come back and get us. Now that's assurance. Assurance comes in the knowledge that he'll never lose one of his sheep. Now that's assurance. I can grab that. Assurance comes in the hope that we should continue to hold fast to him. And if we do, he will save our souls. Man, that's something worth gripping right there. And that's faith. Don't hold on to an experience. If you're here visiting for the first time, if you've been here a while, you've heard that. If you're here for the first time, don't hold on to an experience. Don't rest on that. I'm not saying live in fear. Am I in? Am I out? Am I his? Am I not? I'm not encouraging that either. But man, I'm telling you, hold fast to Jesus till your last breath. That's what the saints do. That's what the faithful do. They go the distance, trusting and hoping that something will come to pass. And that's what these people did in this chapter. Resting on him, not resting on some experience. Abraham didn't place his faith in a vision from God. Noah didn't place his faith in a big chunk of wood or the plans to build that chunk of wood. He placed his faith in the God of that wood the God of those plans, as Abraham did. He placed his faith in the God of that vision and the God of that call. Faith is the assurance, the substance of things hoped for. And faith is also the conviction of things not seen. Now, I want you to think about conviction and visual feedback for a moment. It makes sense for conviction to go with things that you can see. You think about a court of law, you've seen enough of this stuff on TV, or you may be a lawyer, you may be in that environment from time to time, and you have likely heard people say in some context or another, I know what I saw. Or you may have heard them say the phrase, I saw it with my own two eyes. That right there is conviction, right? I mean, you can hear it. Mm, I saw it. I know it happened, and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. Conviction that goes with seeing stuff makes total sense. But faith is different. If eyes are the organs of conviction for the visible, faith is the organ of conviction for the unseen. It's a different type of organ altogether. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul pointed to this reality. He said, we walk by faith and not by sight. The rest of the world may walk by what they see, but we are different cut, a different cloth. We walk according to unseen things. Un- unseen things that are so true to us that they become our ultimate reality. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's where our conviction comes from. Faith is convicted about stuff your eyes can't Verify, And in fact, in a lot of cases, your eyes will tell you the exact opposite of what your faith is telling you. By faith, we live as if things were other than they appear. A couple of quotes that I'm going to share with you this morning. Here's the first of the two from John Calvin. He wrote of faith in this 
this aspect of faith. He said, the Spirit of God shows us hidden things, the knowledge of which cannot reach our senses. We are told of the resurrection of the blessed, but meantime, we're involved in corruption. We are declared to be just, and yet sin dwells within us. We hear that we are blessed, but meantime, we are overwhelmed by untold miseries. We are promised an abundance of good things, but we are often hungry and thirsty. God proclaims that he will come to us immediately, but seems at times to be deaf deaf to our cries. What would happen to us if we did not rely on our hope? And if our minds did not emerge above the world, out of the midst of darkness, through the shining word of God and by his spirit, faith is therefore rightly called the substance of things which are still objects of hope and the evidence of things not seen. Man, you're going to see these realities. You're going to see this play out in assurance and substance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen throughout these stories that we uh, consider this summer. You're going to see it throughout these cha- this chapter in real lives with real people. You're going to see Noah believe God and Noah build something that's never been built. It's never been needed You're going to see Abraham believe God and move to a place he's never been. You're going to see Moses believe God and approach Pharaoh with a request that really seems ludicrous. You're going to see people throughout this chapter acting on things not yet manifest, but believed to be true. That, people of God, is faithfulness. Trusting in what hasn't happened yet as if it's already happened. Here's the other quote I want to share with you from a Chinese evangelist named Watchman Nee. He says, faith is always meeting a mountain. A mountain of evidence that seems to contradict God's word. A mountain of apparent contradiction in the realm of tangible fact. And either faith or the mountain has to go. They cannot both stand. Some great quotes from some other faithful folks. Be assured, people of God. Be assured to the point as if it's actually substance, as if, as if you can actually touch it. Be convicted, people of God. See with the eyes of faith, not with your eyeballs, not with your ears, See with the eyes of faith through what God has promised. Believe it and act on it. Now, let's look at verse 3. The second thing we're going to consider this morning is faith starts with the basics. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. This is going to seem pretty basic, and that's on purpose because we're making a point, and the Hebrews preacher is making a point about basic faith. This may be a challenge for some of you this morning. It may not for others. You may just take it as as it reads. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 
This is where the Hebrews preacher is thinking. He moves into guys like Abel and Enoch, which are in the, na- the next chapters, Noah. So he's thinking here. So let's go here. Let's follow him here. And let's read just a few passages here in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. In verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse. Down in verse 7, and it was so. And God says it's good. Actually, in that passage, he didn't say it's good, likely because that's the flood that's going to, that's the separation of the the lower and upper waters that's likely going to be undone later. It's the only day that he doesn't declare good. In verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. He says it, and it's so, and it was good. At the end of verse 10. In verse 11, And God said, Let the earth, earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, fruit trees, bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind and on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. In the end of verse 12, it was good. Verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And down in verse 15, and it was so. And over in verse 18, and it was good. What we're saturated with in this chapter is the reality that God speaks, and it's so, it happens, and it's good. The point that the Hebrews preacher is making right here is let's start with faith being something that rests on basic truths. That God spoke and that God and that it was and that it was good. Here's the reality of this chapter and here's something I want you to consider people of God. A painter we often use language of creati- creativity or creation when we're speaking of someone painting. They're so creative. But let me tell you what they're doing is they're re- only rearranging matter. They're taking canvas and they're taking brushes and they're taking paints and they're rearranging matter. And they might be very creative, but they're not ultimately the creator in that work because they didn't create the matter. God, on the other hand, spoke into nothingness. It didn't previously exist. He didn't, like a construction guy, take a bunch of materials and build something. He spoke into nothingness. Ex nihilo are the words that are used for nothingness. And then it was. Something I want to encourage you in this morning is that faith begins with basic truths. This is a great example of we live in a world and an environment where science says absolutely otherwise in a lot of cases, not all science. But science that's out there, science that's pushed in front of us, science that you hear from day to day is about a world that's billions of years old that happened from a big bang or that we emerged from some sort of sludge. But we are different. We're cut of different cloth. And we read what it says and we believe what it says. That's what the Hebrews preacher is saying. Faith starts with basic things like believing that when he spoke, it was. And it was good. 
man, I'm, I appreciate science. I've enjoyed science my whole life. I don't dismiss science, but I trust this as absolutely true. And I trust that this is true and what this means for me. Absolute trust is that we are living in an eight to 10,000-year-old earth. Now, the hard part is when you hear things around you like science, these scientific words that are thrown around like radiocarbon dating and um, years of, millions of years of time that must have, have passed since light from the farthest visible star gets here where we can see it. Something that's been liberating for me. It's just the smallest thing and it's the most obvious thing in the world. I hesitate to even share this with you because I want you to trust what it says by absolute faith. But that doesn't mean that you're absolutely brainless. That's why I'm going to share this with you. Something that's ministered to me and helped me over the years. God would not have and God could not have, I can't conceivably imagine how he could have, created the earth without the appearance of age. Let me explain that for a moment. If you're in the second week after creation and you're walking around the garden, let me just put you in a time machine and push you back there. If they haven't fallen yet, some people think they fell on their first day, Genesis chapter 3, which wouldn't surprise me. But if you could somehow go back in time and walk around the garden with Adam and Eve and you see Adam and Eve and someone asks you, said, hey, man, there's Adam and there's Eve. How old do you think they are? You might imagine them being a young man and a young woman. Let's just say 20 years old. They look like they're 20 years old. From all indications, they're 5 foot 11, 6 foot tall. I mean, they hair on their chest, look like got a beard growing, looks like he's a grown man. She looks like a grown woman. They look like they're 20 years old, yet they were just created. They're created with the appearance of age. If you would imagine cutting down a tree in the garden, you would imagine it's likely got some rings in it. And as far as our measurement of time, we look at those rings and we say, These, this many years has passed. But in reality, God said it was and it was good, just like that. I don't know why that's been so big for me. It's such a simple thought, but it's been liberating for me to, have to, to be able to kind of reconcile this, this scientific evidence and this, just the barrage of of things that we're hearing from day to day, that it helps me trust that this is what it says it is. And I don't have to land in some sort of combination. There, there are, there's a Christian thought out there that's called the day-age theory that believes that each of these days was an expanse of time. It doesn't take Genesis chapter 1 as the rest of Genesis at face value. Moses doesn't speak figuratively. Moses speaks plainly throughout all five books that he wrote. We can trust this is what it says it is. And faith begins with basic truths like that. If you can't by faith trust that God spoke, it was, and it was good, how are you going to trust him in more complex matters? Man, that's faith 101 right there. Am I going to die on that hill and say, you're not a believer if you believe in the day-age theory that each day was a kajillion years and over the expanse of this six times kajillion years that the creation week took place? No, I think you can lo love Jesus. You can trust Christ. But I would challenge you to begin to believe in the basics by faith. And this would be a nice escort. This Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God from nothing so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. I encourage you and challenge you to take him at his word. If you can't trust the basics, how can you expect to trust in the more complicated situations? Let's look at verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 11. Now we get to meet a couple of our brothers and sisters. I'm excited about this summer getting to meet our brothers and sisters, and that's the way I think of them. I am closer to these guys as brothers and sisters by covenant than I am to my family members by blood. I want you to hear that. These are our covenant brothers and sisters, and covenant is thicker than blood. A great example for you is many of you are married, and at the moment where two of you walk into a room, I hope you're not related by blood to get married. You walk out, and in the eyes of God, you are closer than somebody that you are related to by blood because God reckoned it so, because covenant is thicker than blood. And that's why you leave and cleave to that man or that woman. So here we consider some brothers and sisters that are closer to us than even our blood family members, unless those blood family members are also covenant family members. We're going to hear about a couple of these guys right up front. I, I'm encouraged by these guys. Something that's kind of helped me is people going before me in things that I've tackled over my life. I grew up um, in central Louisiana, an overweight kid that stuttered. And an overweight kid that stutters is not the kind of kid that's going to typically think about, man, I think I want to go be a Marine. I mean, I'll just tell you right now, I, left to my own device, I would never have tackled something like that. I would probably still be an overweight grown-up that stutters and, and still sort of feel like that's not, never something I could ever tackle. But my older brother went before me and he tackled something and showed me that if he can do it, I can do it. There's something to seeing somebody go before you and see that they made it. So something that seems absolutely insurmountable, when you put a face with it and you put a name with it, you go, okay, I think I could tackle that. I believe I could tackle that. In some ways, that's what this chapter does for us as we see others that have gone through very difficult situations, harder than the Marine Corps, and they've become what God called them to be. Abel is the first of those Let's meet our first brother that we get to consider this morning. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Look at Genesis chapter 4. We'll take a look at this story and see if we can make sense of what's being said here. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, pay attention to the word choice here, an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. 
So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The word choices here are important. We don't have a lot of information. We don't we don't have a testimony directly from Abel or directly from, we do have some testimony from Cain later in the story, but from Abel, we really have no words to share here to, to consider. All we have is these very few words that are offered and the words are important. Cain came with an offering. He came with an offering that was fitting for his occupation, a guy that works the ground and he comes with an offering from the ground. He showed up Seems good so far. Abel, though, brought of his first fruits. Here's the cool thing about first fruits is when you bring of your first fruits, that means that you hadn't necessarily, you're not relying on fruit number two and number three. You're giving him your first. A great example of how you can do that from week to week as a faithful worshiper is write your check to the Lord as a tithe offering before you pay your bills. Not to see what's left over for God. We get a chance to do this every two weeks in the McGraw household when it's the first check that we write because it's the first fruits. You get our first and our best, God. That's what Abel gave God, his first fruits. There's no sign that they're second and third yet. The first fruits of his flock and their fat portions. That means their choice portions. You may have read some of your Old Testament and know that some of these faithless priests like Phineas and Hophni were taking the fat portions for themselves. And the reason they're taking the fat portions for, the, for themselves is the reason you like a good fatty steak because it tastes good. A fatless steak isn't all that delicious. But the fatty portions belong to the Lord in this offering. Abel gave him his first fruits. And he gave him his fatty portions. Each offered something. Each showed up. But it seems they differed in quality, as did the heart of the worshiper. One was sinful, and one was righteous in his offering. Proverbs 15.8 does a nice job of capturing the difference. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The sacrifice, you're showing up, but it's not your first and it's not your best. And it's an abomination to the Lord. You're still making a sacrifice. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Man, our minor prophets are full of this message. Because Israel was great at defaulting to just giving him some leftovers. And I bet Christians can be too if you're made of the same stuff I am. But the message here is the faithful give their first and they give their best. And here's the reality, the sad reality, is giving your first and your best may mean, will likely mean that in some way you will suffer for it. Listen how the story continues in Genesis chapter 4 verse 6. You remember that Cain is angry. God says sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it, Cain. And then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. We have the first murder and the first martyr. And the Lord said to Cain, 
Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. It's a tragic story but it's a tragic story that has some good news to it. This passage here that says that your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground is drawn out over there in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the second part of that verse that I didn't read, says, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His blood cries out to me from the ground. It seems like a terrible tragedy. But here's the good news. His blood still speaks. His faith still speaks. He doesn't doesn't waste a drop of blood. This should be an encouraging testimony to the Hebrews church that their future blood that they will shed for their faith, maybe their current suffering, and maybe even their eventual deaths, will not be wasted. God will not waste that suffering. God uses even the worst that could happen to you for your faith. Even the worst that could possibly happen to you for your faith. If it's experienced in faith and done in faith, he's going to use it for his glory as Abel's testimony and blood and faith still speaks. I introduced a lady to you last week named Miriam Ibrahim. It looked like the Sunday morning news before I preached the sermon, it looked like they were going to set her free. And I've since found out, Aaron Hamilton mentioned it to me last night. I did some more research this morning. It looks like that's not necessarily true. We don't, there's no sign that she's been set free. This woman's just given birth to her second child. I'm pretty sure it's her second child. She's in the Sudan. And she's in jail right now. And at the point where she weans the baby, that I think they estimate to be about two years, that's the point where if nothing changes, she will receive 100 lashes for her faith because she won't renounce Christianity and revert back to Islam, which she says she's never been. And she will then be hanged. It's a terrible, tragic story. And it sounded familiar to me, though. And I thought, man, if something happens to Miriam, her blood still speaks. It's speaking to me this morning. I hope it's speaking to you right now. If you're facing any sort of trial in your faith, any sort of challenge for maybe a family member, something that's difficult in your life because of your faith, maybe it's in your work environment because you enjoy Christ in that context and people make fun of you, that's a form of suffering. It's not like Miriam. It's not like the Hebrews church was going through or would go through, but it's a form. Some of the worst suffering can come from your own family members making fun of you in your faith. Miriam is facing a lot of that right now from her brother, apparently. If you'll read about that in the news, her brother is saying, man, she should die from her own brother. It's a great example, though, that for her, though, covenant's thicker than blood, and she's sticking with her covenant family and maintaining her testimony. You may remember some of the things that she said last week. I really enjoyed hearing, I am a Christian, and I will remain a Christian. Go, Miriam. And I'm pretty sure I'm not going to change my mind. (laughs) That's a hero right there. She reminded me, though, as I was considering Miriam, as I was thinking about how Abel's blood still speaks, 
I was thinking about how our Protestant reformers, many of them, they carried around two things. They carried around the Bible and they carried around Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it made me realize, man, we've got a message that screams to a contemporary context of what faithfulness looks like, sounds like. And I thought this morning, let's consider somebody that was in a similar situation to Miriam. Her name was Perpetua. Here's her story. She was a Christian noblewoman who at the turn of the third century lived with her husband, her son, and her slave, Felicitas, in Carthage. At this time, North Africa was the center of a vibrant Christian community. It's no surprise then that when the emperor determined to cripple Christianity, he believed it undermined Roman patriotism, he focused his attention on North Africa. Among the first to be arrested were five new Christians taking classes to prepare for baptism, one of whom was Perpetua. Her father immediately came to her in prison. He was an unbeliever, and he saw an easy way for Perpetua to save herself. He entreated her simply to deny she was a Christian. And here's what she said to her. It sounded a lot like Miriam. Father, do you see this base here? She replied, here's the cool thing. She kept a diary in her last few days. That's why we know this. This is not historical fiction. She kept a diary so we know exactly how it went down. Father, do you see this vase here? She replied. Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. (laughs) In the next few days, Perpetua was moved to a better part of the prison and allowed to nurse her child. With her hearing approach, she too had just given birth to a child. With her hearing approaching, her father visited again, this time pleading more passionately, have pity on my gray head, have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life. He threw himself down before her and kissed her hands. Do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride is what he said to her. That's what it looked like to the world, pride. That's what faithfulness looked like in this occasion. Perpetual was touched but remained unshaken. She tried to comfort her father. Here's what she said. It will all happen at the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. As somebody who has assurance in something that hadn't come to pass yet, and conviction in something that their eyes are saying absolutely the opposite, you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but all in his power. Her father walked out dejected. The day of the hearing arrived, and Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor. Perpetua's friends were questioned first, and each in turn, in turn admitted to being a Christian. Each in turn refused to make a sacrifice to the emperor. Then the governor turned to question Perpetua. At that moment, her father carrying Perpetua's son in his arms. Now, that's a dirty trick. 
bringing the baby to her, burst into the room. He grabbed Perpetua and pleaded, Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby, Miriam, Ibrahim. The governor, probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who was still nursing a child, added, Have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. Perpetua replied simply, I will not. I just thought to myself, it just sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to change my mind. I've always been a Christian, and I will continue to be a Christian. And he says, are you a Christian then, asked the governor. She said, yes, I am. The governor condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua, her friends, and her slave, Felicitas, who had also been arrested, were dressed in belted tunics. When they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor, and in the stands, crowds roared to see blood, and they didn't have to wait long. Immediately, a wild heifer charged the group. Perpetua was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, this young mom, adjusted her ripped tunic, this faithful saint, and walked over to help Felicitas. Then a leopard was let loose, and it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. The crowd grew impatient and began calling for the death of the Christians. So Perpetua, Felicitas, and her friends were lined up one by one and were slain by the sword. And her faithful blood still speaks. It just did. It just did. God doesn't waste a drop. I'm thankful for that. We are to give God our first and our best, but don't be surprised if you suffer for it. Don't be surprised. Let's look at verse 5 of Hebrews 11 and look at our next brother, covenant brother. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Turn to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. We'll read verse 18 just to kind of figure out where Enoch came from, but then we're going to look down in verse 21, just for one little tiny paragraph. There's not much said about Enoch. Very simple. Verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not... For God took him. We know so little about Enoch. We know that he was taken. We know that he didn't see death. We know that he was commended as walking with God, as this passage tells us. But here's the cool thing that we learned from the Septuagint. I sent you an email this week, this week reminding you of what the Septuagint is. It's a Greek version of the Old Testament, and it's what our New Testament Hebrews writer uses as a source. 
He doesn't use the Hebrew Torah or the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. He uses the Greek Septuagint. And the translation of this passage in the Greek Septuagint replaces he walked with God as he pleased God. That's why his reference here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, is that he was commended as having pleasing or having pleased God. The translation in the Hebrew is he walked with God, yet here in the Septuagint in the Greek is he pleased God. Now here's the really cool reality from that passage. And the Septuagint is a nice escort there. The reality about faith is that faith walks at three miles an hour. Faith doesn't play out at 70. Faith doesn't play out in short bursts. It doesn't play out in little moments. It plays out in daily faithfulness. I'm going to tell you right now, I guarantee it may not have been a long time for Perpetua before she went to that arena and faced her death. We don't know how much time transpired there between her conversion. We know baptism hadn't happened yet or she was training for baptism, or getting ready for baptism, that could have taken months or years. We don't know, but I can rest on this and know that it must have been a faithful preparation for that arena, a daily walking preparation for that day in the arena, because faith walks with God. It's inefficient walking. It's slow walking. It's unimpressive walking. Man, you think there's no Olympic event for walking. Even speed walkers, they really look kind of stupid. (laughs) Walking is not impressive. There's nothing the world is saying about walking. Walking is amazing. You need to go do some walking because walking is cool. Walking is inefficient. Walking is slow. Walking is unimpressive. It is almost imperceptible at times, the distance that you're covering compared to driving in a car, compared to riding a bike, compared to being on a motorcycle. But the cool thing about walking is it's very relational. And it's very daily in terms of what's being described here. It's daily, slow, methodical. It's relational and it's friendly. One of the things I thought about when I'm thinking of Enoch walking with God is I couldn't help but think of the fall of man. When Adam and Eve had sinned in chapter chapter 3 of Genesis, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God comes walking with his creatures in the cool of the day. And that's what Enoch did by faith. He goes back to walking with God because faith walks and it's unimpressive. Now, what are some ways that you can walk if you want to be faithful? You can walk in some really unimpressive ways like daily, weekly prayer. Prayer. I was thinking about this week. Prayer is like audible faith. It's audible faith. You want to know what what faith sounds like? Join some people in prayer. You got your head bowed. Your eyes are closed. You're made of the same stuff that I'm made of. Your mind's wandering about all the things you need to tackle that day. But then you try and come back because you really want to be engaged. You realize you're standing in the throne room, but you're not standing in the throne room 
physically. Your eyes are telling you. We meet with some guys on Wednesday mornings, and it's the most unimpressive thing in the world, but I treasure it. Some of the guys that we meet together, the clouds don't part. We don't hear any, any, any lightning. You don't hear lightning. We don't hear any thunder. We don't see any lightning. Man, there's no real movement. Like, oh. But it sounds like faith. It sounds like an unimpressive, almost imperceptible walk where a room full of men are praying for the likes of you, asking God for something that hadn't happened yet, leaning forward and trusting that something's going to come through, that God's going to come through. Treating something as if it's already happened, it's that real. When you bow your head in what the world will say, that's a big waste of time. (laughs) That's the royal waste of time. Don't you have anything better to do than that? You want to hear what faith sounds like? Join some people in prayer. Prayer is audible faith. Reading your Bible daily or often. Man, that is prayer. I mean, that is faith food. You don't know what faith eats? It eats that Bible in unimpressive daily or at least often bites. As often as you eat of it, man, you should read of it. (laughs) Think about that. It's unimpressive, but just like walking, it plays out daily. It's faith food, reading. Fellowship. When God's people gather and you fellowship, whether it's a corporate gathering like this or a Wednesday night Bible study or a small group gathering, when you're gathering those with those folks, what you're doing there is you're getting fueled for faith. That's faith fuel. In prayer, you get audible faith. In reading, you get faith food. In fellowship, you get faith fuel. In preaching each week, the world says, man, what a ridiculous waste of time to listen to some knucklehead for an hour sometimes, even potentially an hour and a half. There's plenty of stuff on TV, plenty of athletic events that you could be watching, That right? You're just aching to watch. Plenty of things you could be doing around the house, things that you can see. Things that you can touch. There's grass. My grass is high in my front yard. I can see it. But faith says, you know what? I need to be equipped for faith. So I need to go sit under the teaching and preaching of the word. Just because I'm the preacher doesn't mean I'm not sitting under it as well. I sit under it just like you. I need it. It's faith equipment. It's unimpressive like walking. My encouragement for you with faith is that faith walks with God So you need to slow down and make sure you can do the things that have to do with walking. Don't look for an overnight transformation in your life. Faith doesn't play out that way. It plays out in tiny little faithful doses of movement, almost imperceptible. Faith is believing and acting on that belief in small daily ways. If you want another picture of what that looks like, it looks like the gardener. Adam was made to garden, and through the work of Christ, we are restored to the garden, restored to that walking in the cool of the day relationship with God, and in many ways, we're restored to the work that Adam was made for, gardening. If you know anybody that's really good at gardening, you know that they could be described as faithful. They don't expect too much on any one trip to the garden, but you see them out there daily pulling little tiny weeds imperceptible, unimpressive, daily little movements, 
watering that little old plant and just trusting God while they're doing it. That's what faithfulness looks like. Faith walks so slow down. And then verse 6 is where we'll land today. Without faith, there's no pleasing God. Verse 6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There is no other way to please God apart from faith. Period. It's the way the Old Testament saints pleased him. It's always been by faith. It's never been by works. Anybody that tries to explain the Old Testament story to you that it's by works then and now it's by grace, it's always been by faith. That's how they commended, that's how they were commended by God, and that's how folks are committed now by faith. There's no way to please God apart from it. And drawing near, if you want to know what drawing near to God looks like, there's a nice definition right here. Believing He is, believing He does, and believing He rewards the seeker. Man, that's simple and that's good. He is, he does, and he rewards the seeker. So seek him and find great reward. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the opportunity that we've had this morning to enjoy Abel and Enoch God, we're thankful, too, for the opportunity we've had this morning to consider a faith that is is speaking through the faithfulness of Miriam Ibrahim. Lord, we pray with other saints right now for her deliverance. We pray that she will be freed and that she will be able to enjoy a long, healthy, happy, faithful life with her husband and newborn. But, Lord, if you are taking her home, if you're going to take her to you and her, you have a mind that her blood will speak, Lord, we are thankful that it will, that it won't be wasted. We're thankful, too, for the testimony of Perpetua, a young mom that was faithful to the end. God, I pray that these stories will galvanize this people in 2014 in a pretty easy context that it will galvanize us to be salty and bright and aromatic and to not be surprised when we give you our first and our best if other people make fun of that or make light of it. God, I pray that we will be faithful. I'm thankful that as you spoke and it was and it was good, I pray that you will speak faith in us. That that creative work will be that powerful in creating and growing faith in this people. So that we'll give you glory in dark, difficult places. God, we're thankful for just a good meat and potatoes message. We needed this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For us, our faith has a target. Each week when we take the Lord's Supper, what we are doing is we are setting our sights back on that target because our sights might get jostled from week to week. Different events come up, different things are going on in our lives, different trials. The Lord's Supper is a weekly opportunity to reset. And we reset our target 
not on mustering some sort of faith in you, but in holding fast to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 is a great passage that's a bullseye passage for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Abel, Enoch, Perpetua, Felicitas, Miriam, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the, the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The New American Standard says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Set that bullseye of th- that, he, his work, his promises, what's in store when he comes back. That's our bullseye. That's where our faith is placed, period. That's where our assurance comes. We get to every single week consider what he paid, what he did in the cross. I'm not pointing at Clint. I'm pointing at the table. You're pretty cool, but you're not like that. (laughs) A weekly reminder of our faith is in Christ alone. He is our salvation. There is absolutely no way to please God apart from faith in Christ. Beautiful weekly reminder. We get to take and eat, remembering what he's done for us. Let's distribute the elements and then we'll take dinner together. Perpetua and Felicitas and um, Miriam. I don't want you to set your eyes on them. Don't fix your eyes on them. In fact, the better way to view it is to fix your your eyes on Christ and know that that's who they fix their eyes on as well. That's the point of this hero's chapter is don't get too focused on them. See where they're focused. And we get to do this every single week. Listen to this passage again. I'm going to continue reading a little further, going back and grabbing a passage I already read in Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. You could almost say like all those guys did, like all of them did. The founder and perfecter, New American Standard says the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. This is the weekly reminder of where to place your bullseye of faith. Trusting in Him and Him alone, absolutely. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning and ruling and in session and relentlessly interceding for you. Man, we enjoy His victory every week so that we can be reminded that we'll be victorious in His victory, no matter what we face. Perpetua, Miriam, whoever. Let's enjoy this meal together in faith. Let's take and eat. Let's take and drink, fixing our eyes on him. God, great is your faithfulness. What an amazing way to... to end an awesome morning. You are so faithful. You're the ultimate hero. We enjoy you so much this morning. We enjoy our Savior, risen and seated, reigning and ruling. We give this week to you as an offering and look forward to walking unimpressively with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week.